Today, I'm our speaker, Rodrigo Moray, I'm from Brazil. Rodrigo, he spent seven years in the Brazilian army and then worked for um, a Brazilian think tank, um, which is called ICPEL, where he was looking at military technology, the defense industry, and obviously maritime issues. And then he went on and came to Oxford um, to work on his doctorate on the arms race. And today, he's going to talk about maritime security. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, just, should I just hear? Sure. <laughs> you know, so kind of, uh, thank you very much for, for the invitation, and uh, I just hope to, to be up to the expectations. And uh, so kind of before coming to, to Oxford, I served in the army and I worked in, in this think tank, dealing pretty much with international security issues. Uh, so I was always talking to people in, in the military in, in Brazil. And a topic that always came out, particularly among people in the Navy, was that uh, the jurisdictional waters of Brazil, from the point of view, uh, particularly of the Navy, were more than jurisdictional waters. So legally, it was about jurisdiction, exclusive rights to exploit economic resources. But they, are, they were clearly talking about something else, or something more than jurisdiction. They were considering uh, the Brazilian jurisdictional waters as part of the territory of the country over which Brazil could extend its sovereignty. So there, there was a difference between uh, what was happening from a legal point of view and from a practical point of view. And that raises a, a series of questions, right? Uh, is that legitimate? Uh, how are things in other countries? Is it possible to have exclusive rights to exploit economic resources without having political sovereignty? How to enforce those rights? And how these ideas emerge in the first place? So the the main underlying questions here are, do the oceans belong to anyone? And can the state sovereignty be extended over the seas, just like it covers land areas? Here, a, a brief anecdote. We remember that, right, that in 2007, a Russian mini submarine planted this flag in the Arctic Ocean seabed at a depth of more than 4,000 uh, meters. And these events can be interpreted in, in many different ways, can be framed in, in many different ways. But uh, at least kind of from my point of view, this uh, evidence is a tension, reflects a tension between two different principles. And these are the principles of mare liberum, or free sea, and mare clausum, closed sea. I'm not the first person to use uh, these concepts in this way, but I've been trying just to flash out. Uh, this idea. So, first, kind of the principle of Mare Libre was created by Hugo Grotius in the early 17th century, and he stated uh, that uh, oceans are free space, they don't belong to anyone. And state sovereignty is limited to land areas, and it can be extended over the seas, but only over a narrow strip, a space which nowadays is known as the territorial sea. Uh, the other concept, Mare Clausum, closed sea, was created by John Selden, and it's the opposite. So he stated that 
uh, states can extend over can extend their sovereignty over the seas just like over land areas. So this the sea is not necessarily a space in which interstate disputes only reverberate. They can be an object of disputes in themselves. In, in practice, from my point of view, the, the principle of Mare Liberum was dominant until the end of World War II. There was a consensus on the three nautical mile rule, but that was a quite small area as a proportion of the oceans of the globe. And this has been giving way since uh, the end of World War II to this other principle of Mare Clausum, not necessarily uh, consciously, according to which uh, sovereignty of states may be extended uh, over the seas. But at the same time, the nature of the sovereignty, the nature of sovereignty over uh, the sea is different. We're talking about exclusive rights to exploit economic resources. So countries, from a legal point of view, have what, I, what we could call economic sovereignty, but not uh, political sovereignty. But in many, so countries, for example, can't uh, prevent the movement of ships or aircrafts in the exclusive economic zone or the installation of submarine cables. But in many cases, there is a fine line between uh, these two things. How, how is it possible to enforce economic sovereignty without political sovereignty? So under uh, the international law, countries couldn't, wouldn't be able to prohibit uh, other countries of doing military exercises in their exclusive economic zones. That would be legal. Right? But in some countries, this is not the case. So in Brazil, for example, there is a law saying that countries can't do military exercises in the Brazilian EZ without prior consent of Brazil. And in the case of China, uh, even if any military uh, aircraft or ship can't enter into the exclusive economic zone of China without prior consent of the Chinese government, even if it's not part of, uh, even if it's not taking part in military exercises. So, until eight years ago, the sea was an area on which there is no state sovereignty, only over a quite small area. But today, it is. Why has this happened? Uh, after the end of World War II, there is a sort of boom of research concerning uh, the economic potential of the seas, fishing resources, and on uh, something, on the existence of what is now called the continental shelf. Until then, kind of fishing was pretty much the only resource exploited at the sea. But progressively, there were new discoveries of oil and gas reserves in the sea subsoil, mineral resources, gold, diamond, tin. And the existence of the continental shelf began to be used to legitimize uh, interests for uh, exclusive rights of exploiting uh, those resources. Because the continental shelf would be just the natural continuation of a country's landmass. That was the interpretation used. But uh, what was the first country to make a clear claim of sovereignty over larger parts of the sea? It was the United States, through the Truman Proclamation in 1945. So the United States declared that the natural resources of its entire continental shelf were, from then on, under its sovereignty. 
And of course, this led other countries to do exactly the same thing, right? So Mexico, about a month later, issued a similar statement. Argentina in 1946. Then Chile, Peru, and Ecuador. But in, in, in the case of these countries, they declared sovereignty not only on the seabeds and subsoil, but also on the water, and up uh, to a distance of 200 nautical miles. Mainly for two reasons. First, because they were much more interested in uh, the exploitation of fishing uh, resources. And second, because the continental shelf in the Pacific coast of South America is quite narrow. So it was in, in, in that context that negotiations to create the first law of the sea took place. Uh, so four conventions were opened to signatures in 1958, and together they formed uh, the UNCLOS web. There were three main points, at least from my point of view, uh, about that conference. So the first one, the states will have full sovereignty over the territorial sea. But what was, until then, sort of customary international law were, was then codified into international law. But there is no agreement on the limits of that. Uh, the second point, kind of adjacent to the territorial sea, there will be a place called the contiguous zone, which was considered essential to uh, guarantee, to protect the sovereignty over the territorial sea. In this case, there was uh, a limit of up to 12 nautical miles. And the third point, there will be exclusive right to exploit resources in the continental shelf. But again, there were no uh, specific limits. So countries with narrow continental shelves, uh, holding everything else constant, uh, were not being benefited as countries with this uh, large, right, uh, continental, wide continental shelves. Uh, there was a second convention in 1960, but it didn't result in any substantial agreement. I'd just like to stress that kind of one of the immediate causes of that uh, second conference were tensions between Iceland and the UK concerning uh, the exploitation of fishing resources around Iceland. So Iceland unilaterally declared that it was extending its territorial sea to 12 nautical miles. And the British government disagreed and sent military vessels as uh, an escort to fishing, to British fishing vessels. And this episode became known as the First Cold War. Another case was between Brazil and France. Not about cods, but about lobsters. And uh, the Brazilian government had declared its sovereignty over its continental shelf. But at the same time, there were French uh, fishing vessels capturing fishing lobsters uh, along the Brazilian coast. And the Brazilian government said that they couldn't do that. Right? Because lobsters, they move always, almost always touching the seabed. So they were on, uh, on Brazilian territory. Right? Because they were there on the, on the seabed, not in the water. And, but the French government made the case that that wasn't true. Because lobsters sometimes, they jump. Right? <laughs> so they leave. They are not in the seabed anymore. They are in the water. As they are in the water, they are not in territory under Brazilian control, under Brazilian sovereignty. So kind of this, the whole situation uh, eventually was solved in a peaceful way, but just to illustrate that uh, how kind of bizarre situations can be created 
uh, by a quite strict interpretation of uh, the law. This almost led to a war, right? So in the 1970s, uh, a third conference was convened. And in 1977, there was uh, an event that was essential to the uh, eventual outcome of the conference. And the United States extended its exclusive fishing zone to 200 nautical miles, and it gave reciprocity to countries right, doing the same thing. They would be able to fish in the American area. Uh, so in 1982, UNCLOS III was uh, open to signatures. And the main changes in comparison to UNCLOS I were from what we do for. The first thing was clear limits for the sovereigns of the sea. So 12 nautical miles, 12 nautical miles of limit, plus 12 uh, of contiguous zone. The second thing is that rights, exclusive rights of economic exploitation were being extended to uh, the water. So they wouldn't cover only the seabed and subsoil, but everything. The water, even, even above the water, but I mean, there are not many things above the water, the winds maybe. And, and a, a second thing was that there was a, a concept of a legal continental shelf was created. So there would be a limit of up to 200 nautical miles. So that was an equalizer. So countries like Chile and Peru right, uh, will be, were clearly benefited by, by these countries with narrow continental shelves. The third thing is kind of countries could require, in some cases, in many cases, the continental shelf goes beyond the limit of 200 nautical miles. So in those cases, countries could request the recognition of that additional part beyond 200 nautical miles. But they will have uh, exclusive rights of exploiting resources only over the seabed and the subsoil in that additional area. And a, and a fourth uh, point was that the, the use of the seabed and subsoil beyond national jurisdiction, beyond areas under national jurisdiction, should be regulated. And all the seabed and subsoil beyond national jurisdiction uh, is known as area in capital letters. So that's the, the situation uh, today. Until then, the World War II, state sovereign covered only a distance, a distance of three nautical miles, and currently up to 200 nautical miles. And this can be extended further in many cases. Just a, a diagram with all those limits, more a legal thing. And in terms of jurisdiction over the seas, so this is the current situation. Right? Is it possible to see there? Yeah, can you see? Yeah. Uh, so about 39, 39% of the seas are now under state jurisdiction. 39% of the seas. So if Antarctica is not considered, kind of this area is equivalent to the land areas of the world under state sovereignty. So for every uh, square kilometer of sovereignty over land, over the land, there is another square kilometer of jurisdiction, in this case, over uh, the seas. So this is a different way of looking at the extension of state sovereignty. Here we have the 15 countries with the largest uh, EZs in the world, and I have divided them into four groups. So the first group are these countries having large EZs because they're they're quite big: United States, 
Russia, uh, Brazil, etc. We have countries which are not that big, but they have long coastlines. So for this reason, they have these large EZs. New Zealand, Chile, Japan. We have countries with large EZs because they have a lot of overseas territories. France, the UK, and Denmark. So kind of France has the second largest EZ, right, in the, in the whole world. And the UK has a 51. And finally, we have tiny countries like Micronesia, for example, having large EZs because they have many, many islands, and these islands are not concentrated, they are spread, scattered over uh, like a wide part of the ocean. <coughs> I'm going to focus on the cases of China and Brazil, but just like to say a couple of things about the case of the UK, uh, not only because we are here, but uh, because it's relevant for the case of Brazil. So uh, the UK has the fifth uh, largest EZ in the world, and kind of most around overseas uh, territories. So kind of British territories in the South Atlantic and in the Caribbean, including uh, Bermuda, are about two-thirds of the British EZ. And only the Falklands here and South Jordan, South Sandwich Islands are about 30% of the British EZ. So if the uh, let's say Argentine occupation of the Falklands in 1982 had implied the loss of sovereignty uh, of the UK over the territories, the UK have lost 30% of its EZ. Mm -hmm. Here are kind of two maps. This is kind of the extreme south of the South Atlantic. And we have here <coughs> these areas are the requests for the recognition of the extended continental shelf. So this, this line here is the 200 nautical mile limit. And then requests for extending uh, its continental shelf. So we have Brazil, Uruguay, Argentina. It's a that kind of here, there is an overlapping area between uh, the requests of Argentina and the UK. Uh, Argentina has also uh, requested recognition of claimed territories in Antarctica. Here, the UK didn't do that. And, but Norway has, Norway has done the same thing. So Norway, Norway has this island here. And kind of for this reason, one of the reasons why it claims territories in Antarctica. And here we have uh, a request of the UK uh, for Ascension Island. And here kind of we are on the other side of the Atlantic. And just like to draw uh, our attention here to two cases of Namibia and Madagascar. So in the case kind of this point here, is the Madagascar. It's about kind of 800 nautical miles from the coast of Madagascar. So we're talking about large parts of the sea that could be uh, under a state jurisdiction. So this is the only this area is bigger, right, than the country itself. So China. So <clears throat> China has an EZ of 900,000 uh, square kilometers. It's quite small, right, in comparison to the country size. Uh, economy, political influence, population, etc. And from it, this is a major element in the ongoing disputes in the East China Sea and in the South China Sea. Chinese is that's quite small. So China hasn't benefited from UNCLOS 3, as have other, most of other major countries in the world Brazil, the US, uh, Russia, France, the UK, among others. Let me first kind of briefly look at some disputes here in the East China Sea and then after in the South China Sea. So we have this area here, 
So China claims uh, sovereignty over uh, Senkaku Islands, currently under Japanese control. And if uh, China uh, were successful in this claim, that would increase the Chinese EZ by 8%. Right? Only those tiny territories increase by 8%. Kind of here we have another one, right? Okino Torishima. So this is a Japanese territory, recognized as Japanese even by China. But China argues that uh, it's an atoll and it shouldn't have a right to an exclusive economic zone. It should have the right to a territorial sea and single zone, fine, but not an exclusive economic zone. Why? Mainly for two reasons. Kind of UNCLUS, the Article 121 of UNCLUS says that rocks can only have an EZ if they can sustain human habitation or if they have an economic activity of their own. Right. And that islets are only islets if they are above water at high tide. Right. But this is Okinotorishima. Right. And so kind of as Japan has sovereignty over this atoll, it has uh, that large EZ. And Chinese make the case that it should it. So that, that should be uh, part of international waters. So any country could exploit resources in that part uh, if they requested that to the International Seabed Authority. And I was uh, talking to, kind of two, about two years ago, I was talking to people in the Navy in Brazil exactly about this case. And we were trying to think on what the position of Brazil should be on this, hypothetically. And kind of we concluded that kind of holding everything else constant, uh, in this case, Brazil should support uh, Japan. Because Brazil has a quite similar case, which a bunch of rocks in the middle of nowhere, and has an EZ around uh, those rocks. Uh, I can skip this one. So in the South China Sea, as we uh, know, uh, the main disputes are, only, are over the uh, Paracel and the Spratly uh, Islands. And uh, probably kind of a very important point here is that kind of countries in the South China Sea are much weaker than countries in the East China Sea. So we have there Japan, Taiwan, Korea, a massive U.S. naval presence, and we don't have that here. We have kind of much weaker countries. If you look at the evolution of kind of military expenditures, I know kind of military expenditures are not a perfect proxy for military power, but it can give us a rough idea. And here we have kind of the blue line, the military expenditures of China. So in 1994, the military expenditures of China were about 70% of all the other countries in the South China Sea combined. And now it's four times higher. And I just think that this is probably a very important point because uh, time, time is on China's side. Right? It can wait. It doesn't have to do things in a hurry. Other countries are running against time, because China is becoming relatively much more, much more powerful. So the case of uh, Brazil. So the EZ of Brazil has 3.7 million square kilometers. It's slightly bigger than the EZ of Chile, and about half of the British EZ. It has a long coastline, but it has few territories situated, just a few only a few territories situated 
at a great distance from its coast. And these are this archipelago here of Trindade and Martinsland, and this one here, the St. Peter and St. Paul uh, archipelago. And this area, these areas here in darker blue and red uh, are the request of Brazil to the recognition of its extended continental shelf, and the red areas are those which haven't been recognized. So the country resubmitted uh, the request, and it's kind of currently being analyzed. Okay. And I'd just like to draw our attention to the case of St. Peter and St. Paul archipelago here, because it's this, right? It's about the size of a football pitch in the middle of nowhere. Because Brazil has sovereignty over these rocks, it has a right to an EZ around it. And it, this is 450,000 square kilometers. 400. This is about only the EZ around this island. is half of the whole Chinese EZ. So trying to understand uh, things uh, from the point of view of China, it seems unfair, right? If, uh, if I'm someone in the Chinese government looking at something like this or at the situation of Okinawa Torishima, it seems a bit unfair. And, but the point kind of rocks don't have a right to an EZ unless they can sustain human habitation. So the Navy in Brazil created, uh, had a brilliant idea of creating in 1998 a research station. So there is always someone there, usually four researchers. So they spend two biologists, usually. So they spend two weeks there doing research, and then they go back home. And then another group comes, and then they go back home, and again and again and again. So there is always someone there. So it's technically is uh, inhabited, right? And the country has kind of this large area under its jurisdiction. And kind of the Navy, of course, is interested in having more resources, more money to, to protect it. But at the same time, money is quite budget, is quite limited. So how to explain to the rest of the government, how to explain to people there that the Navy needs, needs more resources? So someone came up with a very good idea. So the Amazon in Brazil is much more than a rainforest or a hydrographic basin or something. The Amazon is, is a sort of colony of the rest of the country. So the rest of Brazil kind of behaves towards the Amazon as though it were a sort of colony that has to be occupied, that has to be protected, particularly, of course, kind of from other countries. And this idea of protecting the Amazon is strong not only in the military, but among the population as a whole. And there are surveys uh, showing that. So a Navy's admiral used kind of the symbolic power of the Amazon and coined this uh, phrase here, the Blue Amazon. And, and this thing has become a, a buzzword. Where, kind of everywhere you go in Brazil, uh, conferences, people are talking about the Blue Amazon. And it, it, it has become quite uh, popular. So we have slides like this. Kind of, I've attended some uh, presentations by Navy officers. And they show slides like this. So Blue Amazon, uh, about uh, as large and as rich as the, the green Amazon, about half of the national territory have others like this one as well. So kind of those yellow dots are offshore drilling sites. Right? And we have here the British territories in the South Atlantic. And they're not, I wouldn't say they're perceived as a, a threat, 
but it's more like an inconvenience. Because the main point here is to control the central part of the South Atlantic. And here we have, according to the Navy, uh, what the maritime strategic areas are. And it covers not only the Brazilian jurisdictional waters, but actually the whole South Atlantic and part of the Caribbean. And includes the uh, coast of countries, in uh, African countries in the South Atlantic. Uh, another thing uh, we can do is compare the size of the Brazilian EZ to the, to the size of the EZ of other countries in the South Atlantic. So a couple of things uh, are, a couple of figures here are interesting. So the EZs of Brazil and UK are pretty much equivalent. So the, this is the EZ of the UK only in the South Atlantic. Uh, another thing is kind of about half of the EZs in the South Atlantic are either Brazilian or uh, British. And this could be extended even more, because these are requests for recon recognition of the extended continental shelves. Right, so the area requested by the UK is larger than uh, the request from Brazil. And it could be extended even further, because kind of the UK hasn't uh, made requests for all its territories in the South Atlantic. Um, so, kind of finally, in the case of Brazil, kind of there is an area in which the Navy, alongside other ministries, uh, have, have been conducting uh, geological research. It's a place called Rio Grande Rise. You can see it's lighter, right? It's shallow, shallower. And uh, we have kind of some news. This kind of was published in the Telegraph because they found granite in a place where granite was not supposed to be found. So it's kind of some scientific discovery. And kind of Brazil requested exclusive rights uh, to, ex to conduct research and exploit uh, resources in this area. And other countries are doing exactly uh, the same thing in, in other parts uh, of the ocean. Uh, again, kind of, this is not about sovereignty, right? But kind of, I just kind of think that things are moving towards more areas under states' uh, jurisdiction, not fewer areas. And even in this case, right? so in this case, Brazil will have exclusive rights to conduct activities in this uh, place for 15 years, and this could be extended for 15 uh, more years. It is sort of economic partition of the seas. And these are kind of areas beyond uh, national jurisdiction. So changing character of war. Yeah, I may be wrong, okay, but I think I, maybe this process might change the, the nature of naval uh, warfare. Because in the past, kind of sea areas were usually places where interstate disputes reverberated, but they were not object of disputes in themselves. But states have been progressively uh, extending their jurisdiction over uh, the sea and they need to permanently occupy, occupy those areas, either with naval vessels or maybe surveillance uh, systems. So there is a fine line, again, kind of between economic sovereignty and political sovereignty. Because the main point here is kind of how to protect areas under state jurisdiction without having political sovereignty. So in the case of Brazil, for example, there is a, a project of a surveillance system to enforce its jurisdiction in its 
jurisdictional waters. It's called the Blue Amazon, okay, the Blue Amazon, Blue Amazon Management System. Another question, kind of, what happens in the case of small countries, like Micronesia, it's quite tiny, tiny, tiny countries. Uh, they have no capacity, and they will never have capacity to enforce its jurisdiction over their uh, jurisdictional waters. So kind of, we, have, we have large areas formally under state jurisdiction, but with no uh, de facto jurisdiction. What should they do? Should they outsource, maybe, mm -hmm. the protection of those areas? And finally, we have areas that kind of in the past had little or, or no relevance, and they may gain importance, mm -hmm. at least kind of more relative importance, whereas like the Falklands, French territories in the Pacific. And in, in this, in theory, might change the relative importance of these areas as a whole, right? The South Atlantic and the South Pacific. And yeah, that's it. Thank you very much. <laughs>